Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your host, Oxygen Advantage founder, Patrick McKeown. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. It's not often I get to talk to a, a DJ, an author, a mindfulness teacher, and very interesting ideas in terms of bringing everything together and getting the information out there. So Dermot Whelan, welcome. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. And your book, I was reading your book, and I have to say, it kind of reminded me in a way of James Nestor's book, Brett, and in that it was very accessible to the general population, but there was a great little message as well that was interweaved throughout it. And a lot of topics that you you touched upon, you did it in a very nice way to make it, to, to get it out there. How come you got into mindfulness? That's number one anyway. That's the first question I'm going to go into. Did you have a racing mind yourself? Uh, definitely, definitely, Patrick, yeah. Um, I, I, I talk about it in the book in terms of it becoming a, 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 I guess, an extreme event where I had a panic attack on the way to perform at a comedy festival, which um, is not particularly funny at the time when you're having it. Um, but, you know, it was certainly new to me and I guess I had a lot going on. You know, it, it was a kind of a perfect storm. And I guess it is for a lot of people, you know, when they have a an event with their nervous systems, it's usually due to a lot of things, stress, lack of sleep, a bit too much alcohol, um, a bit of imposter syndrome in there. And I guess no training in terms of how to manage the stress that my job was bringing me. I've always been the kind of person who enjoys doing lots of things. Um, but I guess the difference between me now and me then is that I I had no mental tools in my toolbox to reach for. I had I wasn't aware of my breathing. I wasn't aware of the kinds of thought patterns that were ruling the roost, you know, in my head. And, you know, for it, it culminated in me having to pull my car over and arriving into the Kilkenny Cat Laughs Comedy Festival in an ambulance, <laughs> which was quite dramatic um, and quite showbiz <laughs> with the flashing lights and all. But, you know, that started me thinking, OK, well, look, there's something going on here. I had never heard of what a panic attack was. I didn't even know what it was. I certainly didn't think that I was anxious or had anxiety or had any kind of um, thinking patterns that weren't particularly helpful to me. I just hadn't really thought about it. You know, like a lot of people, you just sort of, you get on with it and you do your best. And I had a job that I was, I was doing breakfast radio at the time. So I was up at 4.30 in the morning. I was doing comedy in the clubs, which was getting me home after midnight. Um, you know, and I had small kids. And so I, I that entire swirling world of life um caught up with me you know um and i guess it set me on a path then to just made me a little bit more aware in terms of okay well what am i doing that's not working here because you know i just got a big signal from my body that something's not quite right so maybe i could start to work with it instead of just taking it for granted or, or working against it at times so 
I ended up just stumbling across meditation quite by accident. Um, a, a neighbor told me that she taught it to the guards. And I thought, hmm, that's, you know, they're a pretty stressed out bunch of people. So, you know, maybe there's something to this. And, and I started to look into it. So, you know, that was, uh, what, 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, I've been a daily practitioner of, of meditation over the, that time. And I enjoyed it so much and felt the benefits of it so much that I, I wanted to deepen my knowledge of it. So I did teacher training with a chap called David G in, in California. He's uh, one of the leading corporate stress management experts over there. And I liked his style because he mixed comedy. He's just a funny guy. And I, I had never seen that material presented in a way that made me laugh before. It was always very earnest and serious and, you know, presented by people that I probably mightn't have a pint with. So when I suddenly was laughing out loud, learning things about my nervous system and my brain and and uh, my thought patterns, I thought this is something I want to know more about. So I, I trained as a teacher with him and and that's why I teach it now when I'm not uh, on the radio. Mm. It's really interesting. I think a lot of people, so many people are stuck in this space and it's almost that all of our attention is consumed by thought. And do you ever look back when you were in school or if you went on to higher level, which I'm assuming you did, or if you were walking down a street that you wouldn't even see what's going on around you because you constantly attention going from one, one thought to another, but not even realizing it. How was that for you, aside from the panic attack, because not everybody might relate to the panic attack, but in your time up to that, how was the how do you feel the mind was for you? That's a really good question. Um I you know, I had so little awareness of of how I thought, you know, and I it's only after looking back that I was like, wow, there were a load of events where you know, I was not in a good frame of mind, but at the time I thought, I just thought everything I thought was normal. And I think it's the, that way for a lot of people. I remember going for an audition or like a postgraduate course as um, in Salford in Manchester to, to be an actor. And I remember being so like almost cr just crippled by anxiety and, you know, performance anxiety, shyness. I was constantly blushing all the time anyway. But is that not, a, is that not a, a reminiscence of our Catholic childhood whereby sex, we weren't supposed to have sex in Ireland. It's just <laughs> children happen by accident because you're the same vintage as me, by the way. So I can relate to that. Yeah. Well, I, look, I don't know where it came from, um, but I, I remember just obviously not getting a place on the course because I just basically mentally was unable to get through the audition process and I had to leave. I remember leaving and my clothes were drenched with sweat from the, from the pressure of this. So it, I, I, I guess I felt for many years that I was pushing back against myself. Like there was something that was, I, I always wanted to perform and get up onto a stage and put myself out there and take risks and take challenges and put my hand up for the things that most people would say, no way. Um, but at the same time, everything in my thoughts and my nervous system was saying, no, 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 don't do it. Don't do it. So, you know, when I started doing stand up as as, you know, a f I think most of the fun was just getting through it. You know, it, it's like an extreme sport. In fact, I did jump out of an airplane one time with another comedian. Thankfully, we weren't strapped to each other. We did have proper trainers. But I remember when we hit the ground, both of us were like, oh, my God, that was amazing. 
and then quietly agreed that stand up was scarier. You know, that what, mm -hmm. what we were doing on stage was so terrifying, but I, I couldn't seem to make peace with it. And there were so many things in my life that I was putting myself forward for. But then, you know, in in in, in sort of anguish through the whole process. And it's only in recent years, you know, I, I've realized that, you know, my 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 thought patterns, uh, you know, and my, and for what state my nervous system was in just didn't match my my desires and, you know, my wishes to succeed and all that. They just and I think for a lot of people, sometimes we can feel like that. We want to be ambitious. We want to put our hand up. We want to take the risk. But as soon as we do our minds start having a go at us. It's like having a dog that suddenly turns on you as, you know, when you go to make that, you know, to, to run across the park, you know, suddenly your dog turns on you and it's, well, you're not good enough. And what if you do, if you, you know, if you fail or you might look stupid, mm -hmm. but we're never quite that aware that it's not as if we're super acutely aware of they're the kinds of thoughts we're having. It's only when we can get quiet and actually, you know, make the time to sit with our thoughts, then you start to go, okay, I had no idea. It's like having a load of flatmates in a house, you know, that are constant, just always wearing balaclavas, which is a terrifying analogy, but, but, you know, it's, they're always there, you know, you share the same space with them, but you actually don't know who they are. You don't know their face. So mm. meditation, I guess, allows you to see who you're sharing your head with. You know, it takes the masks off your thoughts and suddenly you become aware of, hang on a sec, you're actually not a particularly good flatmate for me. You know, um, you're not helping me and the things you're saying to me are not particularly positive. And then once we cultivate a little bit of awareness of the kinds of thoughts that we're sharing our time and our, our heads with, then we can start to make, um, you know, efforts to try and and replace them with with. Um, you know, the kind of thoughts that are, are a bit more nurturing and a bit more helpful and actually aligned to our desires and our wishes, you know, instead of constantly pushing against them, because that's exhausting, you know. At the start, it's quite a transition. You know, one is living in the head. There's a lot of thoughts going through the mind and even just placing attention on breathing or placing attention in the moment or into the body. It's difficult to put the thinking mind aside even when we start focusing on the breath, we're thinking about it. We're saying, there's my breath in, yeah. there's my breath out. It's no escape from the mind. I'm assuming a lot of people, when they think about, and also I don't know, even know if we should be using the word meditation. It's, I don't know what we focused attention might be a different word, but when you start, can you remember back to that space whereby it was your first go at quietening the mind and how did you find that? And I'm just kind of curious because I'm sure there's people listening here and maybe for the, for the first time that they're thinking, well, I am actually in my, in my own head a lot. And uh, the first steps then taking attention out of the mind of what to expect. And... Yeah, sure. Um, my earliest memory actually of, of something close to meditation, I guess it was meditation, was I remember we went away for a retreat weekend when I was in school I was probably I was in transition year so I was 15 or 16 and we were in Castletown in Leash I remember and we were in a room and the all the priest asked us to do was just stare at a candle for a while and sure you know as teenagers you're like oh what why are we doing this rubbish 
But I remember within seconds of staring at this, it was really profound. And I guess it must have been profound. This is why I still remember it, you know, decades later. But I remember just simply watching the flame was, I had an incredible sense of peace and calm and a sense of something bigger than myself. And this was just a humble candle, you know, in a not particularly interesting room. Um, and I mean, then then the priest played, um, I still haven't found what I'm looking for and tried to mm, make it into. What a <laughs> yeah. And tried to find a deeper meaning. But, you know, that's probably my earliest memory. So I, I guess when I started, I I. The idea of looking at something or focusing on something or bringing my mind to something didn't seem that scary to me. Um, but of course, my mind bounced all over the place. But, you know, I had been taught from my teacher that it's OK if your mind wanders. We have between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. So they're not going to go anywhere. And in fact, they're keeping us alive. So we don't want them just to disappear because we'd be dead. <laughs> so once I was armed with that bit of information, which I think is one of the most important pieces of information that can be taught, that if you have thoughts, it's OK. Your brain isn't broken. You're not doing it wrong. You know, meditation is a tennis match where the ball bounces from attention to distraction and back to attention to distraction. It will just keep doing that. And that's okay. The more you do it, maybe it'll bounce a bit less, but it doesn't mean you failed uh, if it does bounce. So when I started, I, I guess I, I was okay with my mind bouncing around. And strangely enough, I found that I was, my, my physical body got into it before my brain did. And this sounds a bit weird, but I found that my breathing started to almost do things by itself. I wasn't intentionally doing it, but it was my breathing became slower and, you know, my breaths became longer and fewer um, and my body would move itself into positions where it could, I guess, release things. And, and so that was something that I wasn't expecting that this sort of union between once I had settled my mind it was almost like I gave permission to my body to go, OK, you can sort yourself out now. What do you need? You know, what are you carrying around today that you don't need? So I guess, you know, that that's a part of my meditation that I I, I guess I haven't spoken about a lot because the, the more. Um, that that sort of. Um, I don't know how to how to really say it. I it, there there's a there's a just like you have your two pillars of the oxygen advantage. You have your your functional breathing day to day stuff, and then you have your your breath holes, which is like you know fine tuning for high altitude or, or particular environments. My meditation very quickly began to have two parts. So it was one was the functional. I've got to do something that's quite challenging today. So I need to set my nervous system in place. So I'm going to use my box breathing or, or whatever techniques I wanted to use. So for this specific moment. And then the other side was a space that I just get into that's very quiet. And I just basically hand it over. I just hand it over to, I mean, you can call it a, a higher power or just simply me or just a sense of peace or quiet or, or whatever it is. And as soon as I would go into that, and it's still very much the same for me now, I, I just, anything could happen. I might start um, stretching. I just basically let my body do whatever it wants to do. 
Um, and generally it's it seems to be just release. So I might be yawning a lot. I might be stretching. Um, interesting enough, last night, because I knew we were talking, I actually, I, I, I wanted to really study what my body was doing and was there anything happening in particular with my breathing. And I noticed that my breathing slows down to between three and five breaths per minute. That's where it wants to go. Um, and interesting enough, it will do this by making me um, either like sing, I guess you could call it chanting, but just very long chants. So, so I was going, well, okay, before my woo-woo alarm goes off, what's actually happening here? And actually, if you're chanting, your out breath is extremely long. Um, and so my breaths per minute were slowing down. And then if sometimes I'll feel like whistling. And so I'll start to whistle and I notice, okay, what's happening here? Well, yes, my out breaths are very long again because the whistle is really extended, but actually it's a much softer out breath. And, and it's um, the, the breathing becomes a lot, a, a lot lighter and it's not as, as profound. So, you know, from, from knowing the stuff that you, you know, in, in your books, I, I, you're going to tell me hopefully now that there's science to this and that actually our, our bodies will do this themselves if we just create the space. Um, and so I, that is a very long way of, I'm not even sure if I answered your question, but, um, I, I think, you know, I, I discovered very quickly that if I just got quiet, handed it over to my body and basically said, look, you do what you need to do here because I'm not ending up in the back of another ambulance. It know it know it knew what to do and it knows what to do today, depending on what I'm dealing with in, in my day and my week. The 60 to 80,000 words are thoughts that we have every day. I'm always fascinated. How did they figure that one out? I know. Yeah. Is it is it a real one, you know? But <laughs> the thing is, Dermot, when you speak with some people, they will tell you that you don't actually quieten the mind in terms of the number of thoughts that we're having per day don't reduce, that instead we're going into focused attention. I'm not sure I agree with them. I'd love to know your take. And I had a, an, another conversation with somebody who's really into mindfulness. And his take on it was that, yes, that the the, the thoughts don't quieten. It's only when we direct our attention. But personally, I feel that my mind is quietened a lot, maybe 25%. That there's no effort involved, that it's just naturally quieter, that you don't have that. And I don't feel that I'm because I'm directing my attention anywhere. I just feel that my mind is a lot quieter now than it was 20 years ago. Well, what's your take on it? Because I know there's kind of, I feel there's this stance in the whole theory in terms of mindfulness but then in comparison what's your practical experience of that if that makes sense yeah it does completely um and i agree i i i don't think my mind is any less interesting than it was for me i just find that i'm, I'm hanging out with different thoughts and and the thoughts that i have these days are far more supportive they're far more nurturing and again they're not they're not second guessing me at every step during the day. So I may be having the same amount of thoughts, but instead of, oh my God, you haven't done enough work for this thing you've got, you've got next week. Um, you probably shouldn't be really doing it in the first place. You're not qualified. You're not this, that, and you're, instead of that, I'm going, God, that tree has actually grown an awful lot since we planted it. <laughs> you know. So I guess um, the kinds of thoughts 
you know, I, I've referred to it in the past as, you know, tin, Tinder for, for your mind or Tinder for your thoughts. A meditation can be in that. A lot of us, certainly me and in, in my olden self, uh, I was hanging out and dating a lot of thoughts that were no good for me. And whereas these days, I find that I'm spending a lot more time with thoughts that are more positive. So I, I don't think you're eradicating thoughts. I don't think our brains are designed to have thoughts removed. Um, we can't kind of surgically go in there and take them out. But I find that I'm, I'm a, a calmer mind is, I think for me is, is less friction. You know, it's not that it's, that there's now suddenly 50,000 thoughts where there were 10. It's just the kind of thoughts that are in there are easier to get along with and, and they don't make themselves known as, as much like mm. if you're agitated, is, yeah. like if you, if you feel agitated, it's not that now you have thousands of more thoughts in your head. It's because the ones that are in there now are, are pushing against your deeper desires or, or your, your sense of self or, or whatever um, sense of calm or, or whatever you want to call it. But there's, there's a little civil war going on in there. And the less moments of civil war we can cultivate by getting quiet and becoming aware of, of what kinds of thoughts are in there, then, you know, the, the less friction there will be and, and the camera our minds will appear, I think, you know, mm, I mean, is, is, is that what, is that what you think or? No, not necessarily, but I don't know what the answer is, you know? Um, I just feel people would say with a very agitated mind, say somebody with depression, somebody who's got a high levels of anxiety. Normally, the description is that their mind is really racing. You know, it's literally there would be no gaps from one thought to the other. It's just going from one thought to the other, to the other, to the other. When, when an event happens, they can't stop thinking about it. Whereas I feel when I was in my teenage years into my early 20s, my mind was... I never considered anxiety or anything, but I know when I went down one end of the street to the other, I wouldn't see any of it. And I knew in, in school, I had terrible concentration, totally living in my head and totally immersed in thoughts and a mind that wouldn't stop thinking. But when I look back now, 30 years on, the mind is immeasurably quieter and I don't feel that it's because I'm directing my attention so if I was to measure the thoughts that I was having back then and the thoughts that I was having now, I would say I've got about 20% less thinking. So I don't know. I don't know the answer. Yeah. That's why I was kind of well, curious in your take of it, you know. Here's an example. Um, one of the great benefits for me, pretty much as soon as I got cracking with meditation was that, and and I didn't, I didn't notice it until this particular morning. So I woke up one morning, it was the weekend, and I re remember that I had forgotten to send an email the previous day, and it was quite important. And I heard myself say out loud to myself, oh, darn it, you idiot. And I was kind of stopped in my tracks and I went, my God, I have not heard that voice internally or externally in a very long time. And I can only put it down to the fact that I've started meditating. Mm -hmm. So this was an imperceptible turn down in the volume of that voice that was chipping away at me constantly. Now, I knew that voice was always there when I was younger, but I thought it was 
something that was a you know a positive in that it was keeping me you know accountable keeping me in check but of course it had long passed that it was just beating the hell out of me and it was never satisfied and i yeah. think it's like that for a lot of people it was only when it had disappeared for a while or certainly become less significant inside my mind that when it when i when it did jump out from the crevices of you know my mind somewhere I was struck by the fact that it had been absent, certainly at that volume for mm -hmm. so long. And, you know, I say that it's it's an incredible feeling when that inner critic, that voice that has been chipping away at you, possibly for as long as you can remember being alive, when you realize someday that that has now flipped to being your number one supporter, then you really feel like you can do anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. because you're not throwing roadblocks in front of yourself. Um, you know, and that uh, that can only have come from the fact that I was meditating. Um, and, you know, is it that there were less negative, hurtful thoughts being directed at myself? Or was the volume just turned down or was I just, you know, because every time I meditate, I'm firing up my empathy center. So maybe I'm just you know, working a part of my brain that's producing kinder thoughts towards myself, whatever the reasons are, that was a direct result of it. So, you know, I guess the answer, the real answer is, does it really matter <laughs> whether we've less thoughts or different thoughts? If you're feeling happier in yourself and you're not in the back of an ambulance going to work, <laughs> then I think that's a win. <laughs> so, so it's contentment, and do you do you feel it's it's brought you that contentment? And the other thing is, do you experience do you feel that you've experienced life a little bit more in your journey over the last fifteen years? Whereas you see things now, you experience, or at least you feel that you're experiencing life, whereas before you may not have because of consumed in thought. Yeah, yeah, because I think if you are, if you're beating yourself up in your head the whole time, it's very hard to notice, a, you know, a beautiful sky, you know, or um, interesting paintwork on a building. <laughs> or, you know, one of the things I notice is that when I walk down the street now, I tend to look up. And I, I guess traditionally, most of us don't. We're either looking down. If you're on your phone, you're definitely looking down. Um but you tend to sort of look at, you know, people height level. Mm. Whereas now I, I was walking down through Dublin the other day and I was going, oh, yeah, I do this a lot. I, I, I've never, I don't think I had ever noticed, you know, what's above the shop front, mm. you know. Some nice architecture top. actually in Dublin. Yeah. And you're like, well, these buildings are actually quite nice. I think we tend to do mm -hmm. it possibly more if we're tourists and we're wandering around, you know, because that's because we, we have no other we generally have a bit less on our mind because we're on our holidays, but you know, that that's a small, I guess it's a metaphor for, for how we see our lives that you tend to look at things from other directions, whether that's a building that you walk by every day, or maybe it's a problem that you've been mm. having or, mm. you know, um, a relationship that you've been in that suddenly you start to see from a few more angles and you have maybe a bit more gratitude for, or, um, you know, we start to widen our perspective a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, so I, you know, in, you, once that happens, you can't but enjoy life a little bit more because you haven't got tunnel vision. Yeah. You know, you're not just looking at the same thing the same way day in, day out. That's why we fall into these 
these ruts in in work and relationships and whatever else you're whatever you're having yourself is because we're we're caught in these mental loops of of this of seeing something from the same angle repeatedly we're never going to break that unless we start to change how we use our brain um and i you know from your work which really excites me and that I can't wait for people to to use your app and and learn a bit more about it if they can is because bringing in the breathing aspect of it, I I think is a brilliant gateway for a lot of people as well. It's another route to what I've just been describing, because a lot of people are terrified of their of their minds. You know, yeah. I talk about this this study that was done in in the University of Virginia eight years ago where they got a few hundred people. And all they asked them to do was sit in a room with their thoughts for, you know, between five. Just the, electri- and- the electrocution uh, study. Yeah, you, so they, in, they, in your book, yeah. Yeah. So they put a button on the table and said, look, you don't have to press that button. But if you do, we should tell you it's going to be very painful. It's be an electric shock. And they were like, do we have to press the button? They're like, you don't have to press the button. We'll see you in 10 minutes. Um, and sure enough two-thirds of 67% of men electrocuted themselves rather than just listen to their own minds. Women, 25% of women did it. One guy electrocuted himself 190 times in six minutes. Um, you know, that's we, we have forgotten how to sit with ourselves. Um, and some people are just would literally prefer to inflict pain than listen to their own thoughts. So if there's a way to get into CAM through our bodies, and maybe some people are a bit more comfortable going, would well, you know what? I don't know if I can sit down for 10 minutes and actually listen to my own mind. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll uh, I'll follow the app and I'll do my breathing. And if I get the same results, happy days, you know, because it's a two-way street, as, as you know, that we can, you know, the, the way if we're generating symptoms of anxiety, through our breathing or whatever else we happen to be doing with our bodies a lot that can lead to that we can we can literally kickstart the anxiety it doesn't all come from your mind down it can go the other way up as well um as i'm literally you know preaching to the man who's made that information famous so um you know i i think it's it's a nice way nice to to reassure people that if they still feel a bit weird around things like mindfulness techniques or meditation techniques or or whatever, you know, whatever that world, whatever those kinds of things have been suggested, if they still feel weird, like, you know, just remember the guy in that study who electrocuted himself 190 times, you're not alone. And there are other ways to achieve that space where your, your mind is a little calmer. You have a bit more peace in your heart and you're starting to notice the brickwork around interesting buildings on your way to work. <laughs> and I think it's getting worse. You know, happy birthday, by the way. I just see that you're, you had, you had oh, a you. recently enough, a big one as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> do you, do, do, <laughs> big do, zero. Yeah. Does it, because I'm, I'm almost there. I'm only a few months behind you. Does it uh, change your perspective a little bit? Does it kind of, because I feel it is for me, you know. I start to realize that it's kind of, I've got some years left, but I haven't as many as I used to have a few years ago, put it that way, you know, that the future is getting smaller and it's kind of changing things in terms of work-life balance. Whereas before we're very much driven as individuals to be productive. I don't know. Sometimes I question who was driven, who has done the driving here, 
you know, we have a population that are typically up to our neck in a big mortgage by the age of 30 years of age, which I think is a great trick to get us working productively for the next 30 years, because otherwise we're going to lose our house. So we have to be contributing. And I don't mind contributing, but I'm wondering, you know, I sometimes I'm wondering what's going on in the background for you with this big zero. How is it for you? Does it uh, how's life in terms of do you have any things that you're thinking about differently now? Yeah, it's it's a strange one. Um, it's definitely been a mixture over the last week or so in terms of. I'm not the kind of person who walks around and tells everyone how old they are. It's just not me. You know, that kind of, I'm over the hill now, you know, because I, I really do feel that's unhelpful and, you know, not very interesting. Um, but I think it, it, I agree that it sharpens your focus in terms of, you know, what do I really want to be doing? You know, uh, time is getting a little bit more, the commodity of time is getting a bit more precious. What I do have on the other hand, though, is, is a great sense of gratitude for still being here and well, you know, um, because I think, again, we're so caught up in the the going and the striving and the doing that we, we forget, actually, that, you know, getting to 50 is is a win. <laughs> like, you know, that's a result. I have friends who are no longer here, unfortunately, you know. And have been gone a long time. Would they have paid extra money or whatever, you know, to get to 50? Damn right they would, you know. Um, so I, I'm not a, you know, I'm not the kind of person that would suddenly uh, just, you know, walk in dramatically, uh, tell my boss to take a hike and then go off to an ashram in India and say, I'm meditating forever. Um but I, I guess it does focus your mind in terms of what are the things, um, what are the things that are, that are taking away from things, the other things that I that I really want is my is my time fairly balanced, you know. Um, that's the question, and, and uh, you feel a, that that's, that's big, coming in. Uh, well, do you know what? It's not because I don't think it ever just happens. I'm working damn hard to make that happen, you know, mm. and. I think I'll always be a busy person. I'll I'll always be. Um, I don't like the phrase busyness because I think we we like to wear it as a badge of honor. Sometimes you know I'm always amazed by if you ask someone how are they getting on, suddenly they launch into uh, you know fifty ways of saying how busy they are. You're like I just wanted to know how your kids were. <laughs> um, but I I'll always be the kind of person who likes you know to be doing different challenging things. You know, and I, I get bored. And if once I get bored, I'm, you know, I, I start to get down. And if I feel like my creative muscles aren't being used, then, you know, I, I, I'd rather be working 12 hours a day and really ex excited about what I'm doing than working eight and bored, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. We're, um, we're, we're lucky in some respects. I'm assuming that you, you like your job. You've got, you've got a very creative endeavor. Even like DJing, for example, it's very much you're communicating to a wide audience. You're thinking on your feet. Um, it's very creative. And comedian, I can imagine just getting up and improvising or stand up in terms of that's really to get into flow states. Because if you're if you're stuck in your head getting out on stage, not a whole lot is going to come out. So no, you've been lucky or not I lucky. Maybe it's the wrong word I'm using, but. Yeah, well, I um, it's interesting in terms of my work, you know, for 
for many years since when I started meditating and it was having a profound effect on me and, and I wanted to know more, I felt like I had two halves to my personality. I had the, well, hey, the performer on the radio, I'm getting up on stages, yay, side. And then there was this other kind of deeper, quieter, um, just a, a just a very different side. And I, I, I couldn't see how the two were ever going to merge, that they just seemed to be at odds with each other. Um, and I remember I wrote down in 2018 that th this is my goal is to blend the two sides of of myself, you know, and my dream job would be to mix the two, the, the comedian, the performer, but also this, the, the meditator and the, the teacher and that that just that quieter, quieter side to myself. And I, I couldn't see that how that was going to happen. And sure enough, slowly over time, now I find myself, you know, in the middle of a live tour where I'm doing exactly that. You know, I use comedy to share meditation techniques and, and to help people de-stress. And laughter is a, is a great um, lubricant and a, and a, and a great um, tool for helping people just to feel comfortable in a space where they're ready to take on new information. So, you know, certainly over the last couple of years and, and now it's, it's having, you know, turned 50, it's really important to me that that I'm authentic in my work mm. and that I'm bringing as much of myself to the table. Cause I, I think that's for a lot of us, why we feel unfulfilled in our jobs is that it's not that the job is terrible or the people we work with are um, horrible people. It's just that maybe that was, that was you a few years ago and that was representative of, of where you are at. And if, if we're not bringing, if there are other deeper parts of ourselves that are misrepresented or are not there at all, we can start to feel quite down and despondent and detached, you know? Um, and I think real fulfillment from your work comes from when you're bringing more parts of yourself to the table every day. You know, it doesn't have to be everything. You can keep a little something for yourself, you know, yeah. for your hobbies or whatever, but passion for your work you know, if if there are other parts of ourselves that are just aren't being represented at the table, it's very hard to stay engaged, you know, mm. and particularly if if your job was ticking all the boxes of you, you know, eight years ago or 10 years ago um, or whatever that was, you know, that it's that was a, a formula that worked for you back then, but may not be necessarily representative of, of who you are now. Mm. There's a book which is worth reading. It's called Bullshit Jobs. And there's a lot of jobs out there which are pretty much that. So <laughs> it's kind of unfortunate, you know, you, you you feel there's some people and they they reach a certain age and they just feel they're asking the question now, what have I actually, I've just devoted 30 or 40 of my years to this and I just feel unfulfilled. Um, Yeah. It, this would be a question that really it should be. I don't not sure where it should be, but how some people are lucky enough and fortunate enough to find an occupation and a career that is married with their strengths and their interests, and then a lot of people don't find it. And is it that the people who don't find it maybe they don't ask the question, maybe they just go into that rush and that routine and they just stick there and. 
you know, that's the way they are. And then after a few years, they feel not particularly happy. I'm going to circle back. I think that was a phenomenal idea what you did with bringing mindfulness and, and comedy um, on so many levels. And because we have to ask this question, mindfulness and meditation and focusing on the breath is nothing new. It's around for thousands of years. Yeah. Okay, it came to the West about 40, 50 years ago with John Kabat-Zinn when he coined the phrase mindfulness, which I'm not sure if I even like it either. But would you feel that a lot of people are intimidated in bringing meditation because it's seen of this left of field and you're looking at people and they're serene and they're all of this nonsense that goes with There's a lot of crap that goes with it, Dermot. And it puts the people right down the middle, completely off it. So what you've done is you've got rid of the crap and you've made something that's very accessible, that there's nothing intimidating. No man is going to walk into, I wrote a book, Anxiety Free, back in whatever, 2010. It was about mindfulness and anxiety, yeah. And I was just thinking to myself, there's no man going to go into, well, there's very few of them, going to go into Eason's, grab a copy of this book and walk down the street with a book called Anxiety Free in the Air, because it's not something that we shout from the, the treetops, whereas everybody will feel comfortable going to a comedy gig. There's nothing intimidating about it. Was that on purpose or was it just by accident? Well, it kind of ties back to what we were saying. I mean, it, it's not it's not a case that I sat down and went, you know, what's the next greatest gimmick or, you know, what's what would be a cool type of show? It literally came from who I am at, you know, in terms of I have both these sides to me. How do I marry the two things that I'm most passionate about, which is comedy and meditation? How how, how do I blend my two worlds so that I don't go crazy? <laughs> you know, and that's where the book Mindful came out of. And that's where the show Mindful came out of um so it was less it wasn't something i kind of dreamed up it was more a kind of how do i how do i blend my two worlds just like i had written down in 2018 how how do i do this how do i be at peace with all these different parts of myself because um i guess it, it also came from a frustration from myself that when i went looking for literature are you know to to get into this stuff it was exactly what you said it's always pictures of stacked flat stones <laughs> um you know really beautiful people if you google meditation and this is something i'd love to poke fun at in in the show you know you're going to see a really beautiful generally a woman um because i think the whole sort of wellness spirituality meditation world alienates men from the from the gate you know, it's very much the artwork, the language, everything is very much aimed at women. Um, and the men are kind of left scratching. Well, what do I have to do? Kind of have a nervous breakdown. And then I go and then I no, we go, we go in the we go in the piss, Dermot. You yeah. know what we do. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, if you Google meditation, you're going to see a really good looking woman um, sitting somewhere extremely beautiful, probably in the lotus position. Um, with this beautiful look of of oneness. And of course, she's not experiencing enlightenment. She's waiting for someone to take the picture. Yeah. She's had great hair, makeup done, um, you know, and 
you know, or else the other one is that the internet wants us to believe that you can only find, you know, peace and calm at heights of 2000 feet above sea level because they're always on top of a mountain looking out over the Himalayas. You're like, I don't live there. No one lives there. You know, a, a handful of people do, but the rest of us, you know, live in townhouses are are semi-detached, are bungalows, you know, and there is no wooden jetty out into a serene lake. Or if there is, you know, it's probably so rotten from drizzle, it's going to collapse and you'll end up at the bottom of the lake. Um, so what I try and I just try and debunk all that rubbish that that put me off for years, you know, that made me feel awkward and weird when I started meditating because I thought people would think I was a, a crusty hippie and, you know, you know, um, and look, if if you are into the spiritual side of it, or, or the more traditional spiritual side, um, you know, are are you're into the more you know that scented candle approach to to meditation, then brilliant. If it works for you, then do it. But for a lot of people, they're not, particularly men, and that's why I love seeing so many men at my shows. Because if ever I went to a wellness weekend, you know, involving some type of meditation in my past. It was like there might have been two men at the whole thing and they were either working there or they were lost. So, you know, um, it's this stuff has to be accessible because it shouldn't be exclusive. You know, it's used by athletes. It's used by, um, you know, high, high performance individuals. It's used by law enforcement, by the military. They just call it different things. Like my, my te- the guy who taught me meditation teaches meditation to the San Francisco Police Department. Mm-hmm. Except, you know, and, and he's as hippie as they come. He's He's got a big white beard and he, um, you know, uh, he's got the, the beads and all that. But he's all he also gets that that's not everyone's way. So he doesn't teach meditation to the police force. He teaches them tactical breathing. So, so you know, it, it's still the same things, you it's know, that, but it's just couched in a different language. And this stuff needs to be presented in a way to everybody that they can relate to you know and laughter is a great way of helping people relate to a subject or to get comfortable in it you know Mm. um because whether you sit down in front of a a scented candle in your linen yoga pants um you know or whether you're sitting in the cab of a jcb with your head racing about something that's going on at home and you're you know you're finding it difficult to to stay calm throughout the day you know, you should have access to these things, the same yeah. techniques, the same, you have the same nervous systems, you know? Um, and that's what I try and do is just, is just to, you know, I, I, I'm not going too in depth in the shows. I, I, I go through some various styles with people. I mean, the show itself is, is a mixture of, of me telling my story through stand up comedy you know, then it's like a funny TED talk explaining the the why and the science and, you know, and and giving people because I think it's important they know what's happening to their their bodies and their minds when they do these techniques. And then the last part of the show is we actually go through some of the techniques. We even do a chocolate meditation um, to show that it doesn't have to be. It, it can also be delicious. Um, but, you know, it's a jumping off point for people. It's a start point because, you know, a lot of people go, I know I need something where do I start? You know, and and that's what what motivated me to to write the book and and to do these shows uh, in mm. the first place. Would you consider your life a meditation in terms of it's not just about sitting down and having your attention inwards on the breath or on the mind or in the moment, but it's when you go for a walk, when you're driving your car, 
do you feel that that can be incorporated into your way of life? Do you see more beyond just the formal meditation and to see your own life as that meditation? Absolutely. You know, and it's, it's very much like your own breathing exercises. The, the, the more we can populate our day with them, the more we can drop them in subtly, actually the, the more advantages we have, you know, um, the more times we can remember to breathe through our nose, <laughs> the happier <laughs> we will be. And it's the same. I guess what the formal practice does is that it it starts once you begin, it starts to cultivate that sense of awareness. And it you're less likely to fall into those that just automatic thinking and automatic be automatic behavior that leads us to drift through our life without actually noticing what's happening until suddenly we hit 50 and go, oh, crap. Why have I worked on that awful job for 30 years? You know, um, so very much so. I, I it, it one feeds off the other that the formal practice creates a, a sense of general awareness. And when you when you have access to that general awareness, you're now you now are in a in a you know a meditation state a lot more during the day you know but i also put reminders i write you know little things on my hands to remind myself to to do a little you know to focus on my breath for a few minutes or to ask myself how am i breathing or how's my posture or um so i i think you it you can't help making your life into more of a meditation by beginning the practice, it will, it will just happen, you know, mm -hmm. and with that comes a, a more a sense of awareness, more of um, a sense of what's important to you um, and more self-belief in terms of getting after it. I think, you know, because sometimes we can have all the awareness in the world and we might know we're not happy with the relationship or a job or, or whatever it happens to be, but we mightn't be in a, in a state to actually do anything about it you know we mightn't have that yeah. um that clarity of thought or, or that yes. self-belief to, to yeah. help us make the move stirring the muddy water mm. the solution isn't going to arise and many of mm. us have been in that issue you know just there's a situation to be solved and we overthink about it and oftentimes i feel it's part of our education system our education system has taught us how to think and it hasn't gave us the abilities to stop thinking it hasn't gave us the tools to quieten the mind. It hasn't gave us the tools to deal with stressful situations. So I think the education of the future needs to be, it it it, it really needs to be uh, fine fine tuned. And you know, bearing in mind that we're twenty five years or thirty years without mobile phones and smartphones, whereas the kids coming down the tracks have been literally born with a smartphone next to them, and they are distraction devices. You know. You were talking about the electrocution people. Well, every time you're looking into your phone, it's getting a hit of dopamine and it is become addictive. But all the time, our attention is surrendered outwards as opposed to bring it inwards. Um, alcohol, because <clears throat> I'm conscious we're coming to a close. Um, alcohol is quite a strange one in, in Ireland society and also in Western societies. There's always this kind of thing. It's There's a bit of pressure on people to be drinking alcohol. And of course, when the mind is racing, you will, it would be normal to drink alcohol to help bring a quietness to the mind. When you wrote, when you wrote, I wouldn't have brought it up only for you. You've written about it in your book. What, what's yeah. your, what's your stance on it? Alcohol. 
Yeah, well, actually, it ties into what we were just talking about. You know, I asked a question at one of my shows recently to the audience, you know, who here learned some techniques to deal with stress in school or to quieten their minds? No one out of a thousand people, zero hands went up. Yeah. You know, and okay, well, then what were we being taught? And all you got to do is turn on the TV. I was watching a show, one of my favorite shows at the moment is called Yellowstone um, with Kevin Costner set in a ranch uh, in Montana. But, you know, it's representative of what we see the whole time. As soon as there's a stressful situation, it, they walk over to the decanter and pour themselves a stiff drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and that seems to be even more popular now in shows. Everyone seems to have these crystal decanters. <laughs> like, where are they coming or, from? Or smoking cigarettes. Like, yeah, I see, you know, whatever shows you're watching and you don't see it in society now. It's almost as if the tobacco industry is trying to get in the back door or something. I don't know what's going on there, but. Yeah, exactly. I mean, look at something like Peaky Blinders or mm. those kinds of things. They're just shoveling the whiskey and fags into themselves. I'm yeah. always thinking, like, if I had a, if I was dealing with a problem during the day and I poured myself that measure of whiskey and slammed it yeah. back, that's me done for the day. I wouldn't come up with a great solution because they always do that. They pour the whiskey, they take a drink, and then they think of what they're going to do next. Like, <laughs> you're literally screwing up your controls you know, in every way possible before actually trying to fly the plane. Um, but, you know, it, it it's exaggerated on television, of course, but these are the stress relief tools that are demonstrated to us by the grown-ups around us constantly. You know, when you were growing up, it was the same. Booze and nicotine, generally. Sometimes it's sugar, you know, we stuff. Oh, look, you're having a tough day. Here's shove a donut into your face. Or... <laughs> so it's all these things outside of ourselves, you know. And when I had my panic attack, I was reaching for those things that I learned, you know, pints, you know, At the end of a week. Oh, gosh, great to have a, ah, it's, you know, it's all these kind of relaxing sounds we make around it. And sure, it was doing the opposite for, for particularly for me, for my, my makeup. Alcohol just makes me anxious. It makes me, um, it ruins my sleep is is the big thing. And I think we take that for granted. Um, but I, I think, again, there's a lot of automatic behavior around alcohol that it's just habitual, most of it, you know. Um, and I think particularly as Irish people, it can be a solution that's constantly handed to us, you know, and even in a in a world of zero zeros and you know zero alcohol this and that you know the the alcohol brands aren't silly you know that's how they got back into sport is that you can you can advertise an alcohol free beer um but your brand is still up there and they're still selling the the hard stuff in the bar you know so yeah i didn't even think about that you're you're so right yeah yeah um but I, it's it's one of these, it's an emotive subject for a lot of people. The minute to hear somebody talking uh, in a potentially pious way around alcohol, mm. you know, are, are knocking it. It's like, ah, oh, here, you know, geez, there's nothing wrong with having a few pints. Or, mm. And I would ask the question, like what I see alcohol is, is a, is a great amplifier. If you've got stuff going on in your mind, if it's anxiety or it's, you know, not great sleep um, or you're hard on yourself, or whatever your habitual thinking tends to be, and usually the unhelpful side of stuff, 
alcohol will amplify the heck out of that. Yeah. You know, and that was one of the things that I noticed with alcohol. I was like, Do you know what? I don't even think that alcohol is the issue for me. I think that it's the fact that I am t- beating the hell out of myself in my head. The reason I keep reaching for this stuff is because probably around that first half a pint, that voice goes away. Mm. It's nice and calm. And then you spend the rest of the night chasing that calmness because yeah, but you can't stop at the first half pint. No. And then what happens the next day, you know, that voice Mm. is louder in the book. I call it the nun on the end of my bed, you know, that it was just this judgmental voice that was never satisfied. Um, So, you know, I, I still, I mean, I, I had a drink this week um, for my birthday. Um, And even that, was a strange one because after it, I, I try not to judge myself in these things. I hadn't have a, had a drink, you know, in, in five or six months before that, but still in the back of my mind, there was some part of me that thought this is a treat. This is something that you will enjoy. This is a reward. This is a celebration. And of course, after it, I didn't feel any of those things. I was like, I want the clarity back. I want my peace of mind back. I don't want this. But it's constantly presented to us as a solution, you yeah. know. Uh, you know, and as uh, as Alan Carr said in his book, the the easy way to stop drinking, which I had a look at a few years ago. You know, what magical drug could it be that solves? You know, that picks us up when we're down. You know, that's there when things are awful and there when things are brilliant. You know, it can't. It, there's nothing. Yeah. There's no substance that just is suitable for every situation. But that's how we've been told that alcohol is. Alcohol is is for, you know, when you're struggling and you pour yourself a whiskey, you think about the thing. Or it's, hey, something amazing has happened. Pop the champagne. Yeah. You know, your achievement is still your achievement, whether you, you know, chuck the poison in on top of it you yeah. know um but you know i i think it's one that i personally i have to constantly work at mm. because the brainwashing is so strong well totally you know yeah. um so, i would agree i like I'm, I'm sure i'm the same boat um i only i only stopped drinking at christmas so what's about 60 50 days into it so but i have to say and it wasn't that i felt it was an alcoholic or anything but you love your few pints and at least that was the perception that we had, you know, and it was always that kind of Friday night, Saturday night, and even sometimes on a Sunday, I might end up having a few beers. And it's just 50 days on, it's just, uh, I feel there's a, a surge of energy, a clarity. And I went to Clifton there last weekend. It was kind of, they're all getting fairly hammered around me. And I was just singing there, I was thinking, about, I'm going to wake up sober in the morning with no hangover. And of course, Saturday or Sunday arrived and two of them are dying and you're just and you're I would say that that was me it's not that I'm casting any judgment that was me as well you just have that comparison so I think it's very good to have that step back but it takes something to it's it's kind of it's kind of almost that we're putting a, a toe into the unknown with that step back and yeah the only reason I would put it out to some of the listeners I'm sure many of you are caught the same boat as as I was and everybody else you know yeah, and I, I, you know, it's that we're passionate drinkers. I heard someone refer to it before, you know, and I, but I, I think that's why I wanted, I dedicated a chapter to it in my book because I think it plays a more important role in people's sense of well-being than they than they're aware of a lot of the time, um, and that, 
like the one thing for me I I, I notice so much is fear. Like mm-hmm. for me, alcohol is fear juice. That obviously while you're drinking it, you're fearless. But just even if it's if you're not getting drunk, if I'm not getting drunk or I'm I'm just drinking regularly, things that I would normally a challenge that I would have been excited about suddenly becomes something that I'm nervous about and that I'm a little bit now afraid of and that maybe I'm second guessing whether I want to do it or not. Um, And it just can it's a very sneaky drug and that it just introduces almost imperceptible increases in fear. Mm. And obviously a little bit of anxiety that will go with that. Mm. Um, And, you know, particularly if you are someone who is prone to anxiety or or a lot of anxious thinking, um, Fiona Brennan in her book, The Positive Habits, you know, said, you know, one of the cruelest things you can do to yourself if you suffer from anxiety is drink alcohol. And we never think of it that way. We never think that we're if I drink that, I'm actually being cruel to myself. But because it, it will, it will amplify whatever's going on for you. And I, I don't think we're aware of that because it's, you know, it's constantly covered over by the the shiny advertising mm-hmm. and, and how it's, it's presented to us. It, it's what cigarettes were. The cigarette advertising used to be, mm. uh, you know, booze is that now. Um, mm. And, and the mobile phone but, is next, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's coming down. So anyway. We won't just... take that off people just yet. <laughs> so <laughs> your app is on it. <laughs> I've been really enjoying your app. I have to Thanks. say, I was very happy to see it being launched, and I've been doing the exercises. I I went for a ten k run today uh, in my the trail runs around Holtier where I live, and I tried to do the whole thing with my um. I I did the fifteen minute one at the start where you you just run and at a nice easy pace and try and keep your nasal breathing slow and calm um and then i just said okay i'm just going to try doing it for the rest of the run so it was it was it was about a, i don't know 50 minutes or so give or take and i i did okay except for the last the last incline is very quite extreme and i just found when i got you know about 3 quarters of the way up that the the nasal breathing wasn't doing it for me. I I had to have a precious gulp of mouth air. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's it's not about going blue. You know, it's it's uh, at some point the intensity just gets a bit too much, and yeah, that you kind of have to open your mouth. You could start breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. I kind of yes, I I treated myself to a few mouth out breaths first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know if I if I had to then take a gulp, but. Like I, if if I kept that up every time I went running, because what's weird is that if I'm mouth breathing normally, it feels weird to me now because you know, you have encouraged me over the years to 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 do more nasal breathing, but if I'm running, it feels weird to be breathing through my nose. So I I guess I have to train that muscle, do I? That it feels just gently over time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think there's something special about the nose because of the connection between the nose and the brain, the olfactory nerve. And there's so much going on there that we don't have with the mouth. So in terms of brainwave states or change with nasal breathing, memory, attention, females select our partners based on the communication from the nose to the brain. Um Visual spatial awareness is better with nasal breathing. If you're out on a football field, you have to have your eye on the target, but you have to read the the pitch around you. There's a lot going on with it. You know, nose breathing is is targeting the diaphragm. The diaphragm is connected to the mind. 
nose breathing is slowing down breathing. So we have as well the top down, the, the, the mind or the brain. There's a structure in the brain which is spying on our breath and then relaying this to the rest of the brain. So the humble nose, Dermot, has been uh, it's been chased out of town. So it's about time to get it back. You know, I think it's happening. Yeah. Do you do you see something changing in terms of your work and the awareness that's getting out there? Uh, in terms of just meditation or nasal breathing or well, the whole lot. Yeah, definitely. I think it's becoming I think it's becoming just more part of the daily conversation. You know, um, I think traditionally what would happen is, you know, people would generally reach crisis point and then they would start to look for solutions. And a lot of the time it's you're putting out big fires. So, um, you know, that's that's a difficult place to start from. But I think the more the more things we have, you know, the work you're doing, you know, the app that you have um, just putting on things like my shows that present this information in a, in a, an an accessible way that it's not exclusive, that it's presented in a language people can relate to, you know, definitely. I mean, I I, just in January, I did uh, four weekly segments with Dahi and Maura on Mm. RTE on the, on the today show um, talking about meditation, uh, you know, and that would never have happened even a couple of years ago because it was still, viewed with a little bit of wariness, you know. Um, but I think there is definitely a sense. And you know what? I think COVID has a lot to do with it in terms of there was an expectation that once we came out of lockdowns and, and COVID and all that, that that we would have learned loads of lessons and that the calmness and quiet that we all fell back in love with during lockdown would somehow feed into our daily lives and our jobs. And the big corporations will go, you know what? Take Friday off. <laughs> it's the opposite. You know, I go into companies and, and, and teach, you know, de-stressing mm-hmm. techniques. And as far as I can see, all it did was ramp up that a lot of people, there's a lot of, of success out there at the moment, um, particularly in, in big companies. And with that just comes, you know, more deadlines, more expectations, more targets. And instead of slowing down for a lot of people, it has ramped up and they're wondering, you know, I can't, I, how do I, I can't get all my work done during the day. I can't switch off when I get home. So I can't, I'm not physically, emotionally present for the people that I care about the most. I can't sleep properly because I'm thinking about all the stuff that's piled up on my plate. You know, they get into the, have a crappy sleep and it all begins again the next day yeah. you know so it it has no choice but to enter the mainstream more yeah. you know it has no choice but to but to come to people's attention because we need something you know everything as you say is vying for our attention there are some of the smartest minds in the world working on devices to try and steal more of our attention in already a crowded attention marketplace. So we need to take some of that power back and we take the power back by sitting with ourselves, learning to sit again with ourselves, learning to breathe properly, you know, learning to, to nurture ourselves and not in a a woo woo fluffy way to nurture ourselves and and actually focus some attention inward for a change because that energy out way of living at the moment is so rewarded and so high fived, you know, that it they don't it doesn't care if you're burnt out. 
you know, are you sleeping terribly? Are your relationships breaking down? Are you want to pull your hair out at work? You know, it doesn't care. It just keeps saying, do, 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 go, go, go. And for God's sake, put a picture of it on Instagram. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, but, totally. you know, we, we can take the power back um, yeah. and, and it doesn't have to be a radical life change. You don't have to suddenly move to India or, or tell your boss to F off. Yeah. You can just, I don't know, try and start breathing through your nose at nighttime or, you know, take five minutes on a walk to actually look upwards instead of down at the ground and thinking about what happened 10 minutes ago or what might happen in 10 minutes. <laughs> it's super. Um, Dermot's book, which I highly recommend, is called Mindful. And I assume people can get this on Amazon and different places on the Eastons. It's, it's in Ireland, but a lot of our listeners are international. Um, it's a very accessible book. And I'll say to, in terms of you see as well, it's always a good time when I have plenty of notes written on the inside of it that I'm putting <laughs> things out of it myself. So so I would really, um, I think it's a very nice book to read and you'll get some very nice pointers. And it's written from the perspective of somebody who's writing about mindfulness and meditation, not just from a theoretical point of view, but it's almost that the experience is coming through in the pages. So it's a pleasure, Dermot. Um, how do people find about, out about you? Uh, com is the easiest place to go um, if they're interested in catching me on the road uh, if they're mm. in Ireland of course um, uh, you can get all my tour dates up there a lot of it is sold out but there's still a, a handful of, of seats left in a couple of venues um, and yeah it's something that I would love to do abroad at some point take to, to other places because uh, we're all stressed out. So mm, mm. I think uh, comedy and meditation, I would love to see it um, to work in other in other places and other countries. So hopefully that will happen. That's my goal. It will. It's I can't see why it's something that will definitely cross borders, you know. Um, I think it's a great idea. It's brilliant. Well done. Thank you. And well done yourself. <laughs> keep up the keep up the great work. Um, it's fascinating stuff. And uh uh, I think that people will particularly enjoy the app because I found it. I just the way it's designed, it's just really easy to follow in terms of the the waves when you're breathing and all that. Um, sometimes apps ask too mm. much of you and your time. And I think you got the balance really nice. So I'm really enjoying mm. it. And I will continue to try and breathe through my nose uh, when I'm out exercising. <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks very much, Sharmash. Thanks, Patrick. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Oxygen Advantage podcast. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review. The Oxygen Advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers.